Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Andreas Cleve, CEO and co-founder of Corti, a patient consultations platform that's raised $32 million in funding. Andreas, thanks for chatting with me today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. So before we begin talking about what you're building there, could we just start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background? Yeah, of course. I am a Scandinavian mutt. I am a Swedish-Danish cocktail, currently based in New York. My background is business school. I think I never really used it, though, but ultimately, it's business school. I had my first starter when I was 27 and got sucked into healthcare into, I guess, very uh, classic healthcare story, very uh, big part of my life due to a mother who was quite sick when I was growing up. And do you want to expand on that story and tell us a bit more about it? Yeah. So I think everybody I, I usually meet ends up gravitating towards healthcare, ends up having these kind of story like mine. So I guess it doesn't uh, come as much of a surprise. But ultimately, my story was that my mom was uh, in psychiatry and when she was going on maternity leave with me, she was attacked by one of her patients, a kid who was suffering with mental disorders. Back then in 86, when I was born, that wasn't as usual. I think today, mental health is much more front and center of our attention. She ended up spending most of my childhood in, in rehab, rebuilding her brain centers and many of her capabilities and succeeded. Fantastic woman, my best friend to this day. And I think it just colored a lot because as you can imagine, and everybody who's been having stints in healthcare, it just means a lot, right? The experience you're having, the doctors you're meeting, the last meeting, how the information was relayed, how you sleep at night based on how that information was given. So I can't remember how many times I've been sitting at our dinner table just hearing my mom or my sisters talk about last or next time or what's going to happen or how rehab was going. So that was a um, big part of my life growing up. Wow. Fascinating. And that makes a lot of sense of how that's you know, led to what you ended up building in the healthcare space, because I think a lot of the best entrepreneurs really live those problems that they end up trying to solve. And it, it sounds like you did live a lot of that and did experience a lot of that. So that makes a lot of sense. And I saw in another interview that at one point you were considering being a banker. So tell us what happened there and, and what led to you deciding to not be a banker. I guess I played quite a lot of soccer. That's what you do when you come from my native of the woods. And I was decent. I wasn't good, but I, I think I was decent. And, and I sort of thought I would have a career there. But I was with sort of a youth talent team going to Spain. I know that for Americans sounds very exotic, but in Europe, it's a quite small place when it comes down to it. So we were in Spain, talent training, and I got hit by a motorcycle in, in running traffic and my broke my leg in eight places. So my soccer career was gone. I was 17 and had to figure out what to do next. And it seemed obvious that bankers had a blast and uh, I'd seen Wall Street and read the book. So I thought that was the way to go. And sitting at business school, it sort of dawned on me that it might not be for me. And that slowly sort of, I think a lot of it unconsciously took me towards healthcare. And are you surprised that you ended up being an entrepreneur and a, and a founder like you are today? Like take us back to maybe 10 year old Andreas, like would he be surprised that you ended up where you are? And was your family surprised that you ended up starting a company? It's a great question. I don't think I'm one of these entrepreneurs who's like, I was selling lemonade and stuff. Definitely weren't. I grew up with my mom, as, as I said, and, and my sisters. And there wasn't like a big sort of entrepreneurial influence or career influence from them. They were all in healthcare or my, my big sister is an artist. 
fascinating, absolutely intelligent, brilliant people, but career and like entrepreneurship wasn't a thing. So when I, when I was 10, like, what was I doing? I was just playing soccer. I had, uh, my mom was very big on me understanding like computers and that sort of thing. That was still new. Remember, I'm, I'm quite old. So I had a computer, assembled that, played around with that. That was the old Macintosh I got first and then went through hordes of them. Uh, so played a ton of computer, played a lot of soccer. And like, there was no real sort of aptitude towards it or drive towards doing any of it. Until I started hitting the labor force and got in, getting into my first jobs. And I think what sort of dawned on me, and I think that's where my family would agree, is that I'm quite high drive. So I, I'll have a lot of energy. I don't sleep a lot. I'm, I'm pretty engaged. And when I do stuff, I really like doing it. So like right now with you, I'm, I'm there, I'm present. And that's sort of how I, I function. And I think we've all had these experiences coming into our jobs, especially if we didn't have very strong leaders, where we start questioning, like, I thought grownups had this stuff under control. And it's like, I am so surprised this is how it's really working. And those questions sort of let me down a path of like, maybe I should try to do it myself. Isn't that funny how that works? When you're a little kid, you really just look at adults like, wow, they must have all the answers. And then you become an adult and you're like, shit, no one has any clue what they're doing. <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. At least it was for me. Yeah, I think that's pretty consistent for most people. Or maybe they're around someone that, yeah, that I wasn't around, but that's been my experience. Now, I'd love to also ask you about the move to the US. So what year was that that you left? Copenhagen and, and moved to the States. Yeah. So I had my first healthcare startup. Actually, my first startup was, um, and that, that sort of business school sort of led me towards technology, which I've been dabbling with forever. I convinced an e-commerce team back in the days when, when sort of e-commerce hadn't blown up yet and mobile was still new, that I could help them program a new cross-functional interface that would work on, on mobile as well. And, and they agreed. I, I was way younger than they were, and they were sort of a classic commerce company. So they, I guess just they bought my age and I said, that guy must know how to program. So my very rudimentary front-end skills led me down a path of building a very crappy e-commerce platform that ultimately ended up me becoming the CEO of their, their what would be their e-commerce arm. Uh, we were 11 people back then. And I was mid-20s. And sitting there in that e-commerce company, it really dawned on me, A, to the point from before, like grown-ups haven't got this covered, to what was going to happen and everything was going to digitize. And ultimately, it made so much more sense being on the owner side of, of things with my personality. So that was it. And slowly, healthcare started sort of popping up on my radar. Not that I was like deliberately looking for it, but I think it looked more for me than anything. I built a company with really great people called Ovivo, which we had founded in 2010. We sold in 13. And the idea was it was a chatbot. And everybody out there listening is like, chatbot, yeah, that's why. Like, why could you even sell that company? And remember, this was 2010. Like, software as a service was still new back then. And so we built an SMS and Facebook Messenger-based chatbot that allowed nursing homes, home care units, and hospitals to shift their staff usage towards using all staff instead of temp agencies. So you can actually use this chatbot to chat with all your staff automatically and get them to work when you actually thought they couldn't. And that saved them a killing. We had the company for, for a little over two years, sold the company, bought some Bitcoin, and this was like 2013 or something. And I thought, now I'm off to... Silicon Valley, that's going to be where I'm going to be for the next 100 years. That was the start of that journey. In 2010, doing chatbots on Facebook Messenger, that must have been very, very early days. When did Messenger even roll out? Was it right around that time period? Back then, it wasn't even called Messenger. So it was just like you could do plugins for Facebook. So you could do like you could do, like, you could do like company pages and you could buy stuff. We actually signed up for your page. So we had to get our customers, users to... Find that page we built for them. We called Ovivo slash customer name, and then they had to sort of join the group, and then we could start messaging them and building for it. 
So this is not at all as sophisticated as I'm possibly making it sound, or you might think back then it was super rudimentary. And I know you had an exit there. Do you think you, if you had built that company today, it would have been more successful? Because it sounds like it, it could have even been a, ahead of its time, because I feel like that's the conversation right now, right? Everyone's talking about chatbots and, and all these types of things. So do you think you were ahead of your time a little bit there? Yeah, and definitely also for worse, right? I think timing is one of the things I usually talk the most with the deep tech entrepreneurs. The majority of my grown-up life have now been in deep tech, especially in, in healthcare and around healthcare. The timing is everything, right? So when we started doing this in clinic, they really found like hospitals. They really found it weird because like back then you didn't have bring your own device. Everybody didn't have like smartphones. So us coming there saying, hey, we're going to text you. Like a robot's going to take our system's going to text you. We actually just called it a conversational interface because like chatbots wasn't sort of coined yet or at least not widely used. So that was weird for them. But like home care where people was driving around, that was like very, very kosher. So it was a lot about finding the niche where it made sense. And that ultimately, we, we, we sold the company. It, it's in another big company now, and they're doing great. And I think what I learned from there, which also helped me to found Cordy later, was everybody who's doing important work with people, they're ultimately picking that job, if they are deliberately picking that job, to be that person that helps or is something important to those people. And that sort of builds on like what I sort of try to build into my life, which is presence. Like I'm there, I'm available, I'm, I'm present. And you can't be that while sitting at a laptop or a computer. And I think that's sort of the conversational part, which I really like, is that technology as it deflates, makes everything cheaper and more accessible and more distributed, also makes or usually becomes more and more invisible. And I think that's what I took from Ovivo into now building Cordy. Nice. I love that. Now, a couple of other questions just to better understand what makes you tick. First one is, what CEO or founder do you admire the most and what do you admire about them? This is wrong answer, but it was my first intuition. Churchill, he's not a founder, but I think every founder who's read up on Churchill will agree, especially when you're building deep tech. Remember when I started Cordy, which is this AI company that listens to patient consultations. So it's I'm listening. When we started building that in 2016, and we ran around talking to people about the opportunity of like A and B and listening AI, the majority of people was really scared about sort of the big brother Hollywood kind of way of thinking about it. And nobody, nobody wanted AMB and AI and clinic listening, and it felt super big brother. So imagine coming there and being the contrarian saying, like, I really truly believe I could do something fantastic for you if you would allow me to. And searching for those early adopters that believe what you believe, and there were very, very few. And I think that sort of resonates the most with me in, in a guy like Churchill. I could come with many, and we can do that afterwards, like classic founders. But a guy like him who for 40 years was one of the most hated people in public Britain ended up becoming the man who led him out of the Second World War because he believed and truly stood by his, his principles. I think that's sort of what it needs and what it takes if you want to be market-defining in deep tech. Yeah, you know, I have inspiration as well from these you know, older leaders that weren't entrepreneurs. Mine is Napoleon, which is a, you know, controversial, I think, in some parts of the world. But behind me, I have my Napoleon statue. And I just find there's so much fascinating stuff to learn from studying these people and, and how they think or how they thought and how they executed. It's just a, a really fun exercise to go way back and study what they were doing, I think. I absolutely agree. I do agree on, on Napoleon, although I'm in Europe where he might be more controversial. And I think the siege of too long and the story about how he fought strategy was still to this day absolutely fascinating. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. What about books? Is there a specific book that's had a major impact on you as a founder, but also just how you view the world. So maybe getting outside of like the classic business books like 
the hard thing about hard things or built to sell or built to last, like getting away from those books. Are there any specific books that really changed how you view the world? I think for me, reading is um, like a lot of other founders. I think the majority of my grown up life has been like one big feeling of, of being an imposter in anything I've done and, and, and do. And I think maybe that's because when you're just at the edge of technology and markets, then you end up maybe asking some questions sometimes that nobody has good answers to and definitely not you. And then you end up ending up with that feeling. I think for me, then books has been a really important chapter based way of learning how to deal with all that. So I've ate them up in chapters. I started with all the classic business books, devoured the majority of the literature you'll find there. We've all read. And yeah, I'm good to great, like classic example and fantastic book too. I think the last couple of years has been a lot stuck in uh, economy. Adam Tews is a guy I've really enjoyed a lot, thinking a lot about how big systems work, function. Uh, Ray Dalio's books has been amazing as well. And lately, it's been a lot in uh, trying to read a lot of David Deutsch and understand that better. It takes me forever. I even need a David Deutsch translation podcast to be really, really in deep with it. But I think to, to your point, it's been a lot of chapters. It's been very different for each chapter, what I've been facing. And I think books has just been super important all the way through. Nice. Yeah, I totally agree on that. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. Now let's switch gears and let's dive deeper into Cordy. So can you take us back to the early days? What were those you know, initial conversations like with your co-founder and others as you brainstormed about this idea? Yeah, so um, back when we started in 16, we were just really fascinated with what I said a little bit earlier about the deflationary effect of technology and its opportunity to become more and more invisible. Every technology that starts out, it starts out clunky and big. You just think about personal computers and all of a sudden it becomes more and more elusive, more transparent and more out of the way. And it feels a lot like when you're in healthcare, that technology is in the way. Like the majority of big vendors today owning the majority of important workflows with clinicians, they actually build from a premise I don't think they challenge enough, which is we need to get people back to a computer to do work. So you're with a patient, but... To sort of finish that work, you need to get back to a computer or a screen. And Corey will do some of that too. But ultimately, our vision is we need to get out of the way. And that was the discussion of like, how could we use and what kind of technology could we use that would get us out of the way? And I think right now, everybody's reading a ton about the Transformer paper and what that all meant and fantastic paper. And I think back in 16, we've seen a lot of great papers coming out about deep learning based on all the new compute capabilities and we were very excited about deep speech and all those opportunities. So the basic premise was, could we build deflationary, almost invisible technology that would allow a clinician not just to get technology out of the way, but feel augmented or have more agency with patients to do more? That was sort of the driving vision. Ah, fascinating. And what does the product look like today? And if I'm a, a clinician, you know, what does it look like? What's my day-to-day -day interaction like with the platform? So Cordy's users today, are health systems, payers, providers that have a lot of clinicians who are in a hybrid delivery mode. So they will be delivering online in telehealth or phones. And what these providers, payers are usually struggling with when they come to us is how do we make sure to give all these fantastic individuals the support they need, but also make sure that they have the opportunity to get back on plan when it gets really tough. 
And that's because we as patients, we're not as objective as we might think. We're not giving the objective answer. We're giving our version of an answer, which is usually much less than objective. And the job for the clinician in a very, very condensed environment is to squeeze the most information out of seven, 10 minutes, and there is more or less no room for error. So these systems, they would buy us. We have three systems. We have a pre-consultation system. We have a in-consultation system, and we have a post-consultation system. Together, those three systems will prep the person who's taking the phone call or the telehealth conversation or the ambient conversation to have the right one. So that means putting in your protocol, your question guide, your plans. When you're done in the consultations, we'll augment and nudge so you can click around in them. You can also get them popping up. We can even whisper small nudges. And then when it's done, we will summarize all of it. We will write it up in a notes form. We will code it with some ICD frameworks, and then we will pass that into whatever third-party system, allowing you to get back to the next patient and not to another laptop. And what's it like selling to these health systems today? And, and how do they generally view deep tech like this? Are there you know, a number of them are that are just very open to this idea? Or are there some that just like resisted and are kind of afraid of this type of technology? It's a great question. I think it's changing a lot. And we can talk way more about uh, generative AI and how that's impacting it. But I think there are so many people trying to solve for clinical documentation. I tend to think about it in sort of a single player versus multiplayer environment. If you're a single player GP, physician, clinician, and you want really great dictations, like speaking to a device that then puts out text, I think you have proofs of opportunities to find that from many, many great companies. Where we help is if you're that system and you have somebody like a medical director who owns the risk that's going on in, let's say, 100,000 phone calls or video calls every year, how do you know what's going on out there? Obviously, you don't. These are the people we tend to help. Or let's say you're an operational manager who knows that your 500 staffers at your, your payer hotline, they're really stressed because they're dealing with a terrible work environment, they're overworked, and you need to make sure that you're there to give them the support and training they need before they needed it. And again, how do you know? You don't. So our sort of niche here is these systems that are aware that they're facing challenges on staffing and resources. And they're also aware of it enough to know that they'll need to look somewhere new. And the beauty about these systems is that they're already buying quite a lot of technology. So we're not sort of selling them something new or changing their workflow. We're just selling them a vision of a technology stack that isn't archaic and old-fashioned and filled with black screen software. And I'd love to dig a bit deeper on just, you know, what's happened the last, let's say, six months. So when did ChatGPT come out? Was that December, I think? Yeah, it's probably right. I remember. Uh, yeah, I think it was something like that. So what's been the impact for you? Have you seen just a big rise in customers being more open to this idea of, AI because they can go and you know play with it in their personal lives and they can experience it in their personal lives. Have you seen a big shift over the last six months since ChatGPT came out? Yeah, I think things sort of from the inside out, it's always a bit different, right? I think just taking them out of, of context, but I think like GPT-2 at what was it? 1.5 billion parameters. Then Megatron LM came, TNLG from Microsoft. We had GPT-3, we had Pod, we have GPT-4. We have uh, Claude and Bird and what they're all called. So we have so many of these models already coming out for quite a lot of years. And we already saw Microsoft as one of them unleashing these chatbots that created quite an uproar, right? So I think from sort of an insider's perspective, not that I'm a, a true expert, but as an insider in the industry, I don't think any of us was that blown away by the technology because we knew it was already there or getting there. What I think really blew me away and what keeps blowing me away is how many people got excited. 
And that really changed. So I could be sitting in a meeting. I was very early this morning, sitting in a meeting with a team down in Australia. And today I've been sitting in a meeting with the people here in Scandinavia and in the US. And people have all dabbled with it. They have built it into the vocabulary. They're thinking about it. They're trying it. They're doing stuff with it. And I don't think we've had that like ISIL moment where so many different people in so many different industries got excited about an AI product. And that is having an impact. And when it comes to the customer base, is it mostly in Europe? Is it equally spread out throughout the world? What does that distribution look like? Our customer base today is uh, mostly in the U.S. And that's deliberately because we are a language company. As you can imagine, our AI needs to understand what's said and shared. So we had to pick a language that we knew there would be a lot of language resources on. And again, we needed to make sure that the unique kind of dialogue we're in, which is very different than the podcast audio we're in, that there was enough data on it. And that meant going uh, English speaking first, and then we cherry picked six more languages. So I think 80, 85% of our customers today are US-based. And from a regulatory perspective, is that difficult as you eventually move into different countries? Like in the US, what is it called? Like I think HIPAA compliance and different compliance frameworks like that. I'm guessing that exists in every country. So is there a big regulatory burden whenever you expand into a new country? There definitely is a big regulatory burden. And I think it's increasingly changing its face as a type of dialogue where a lot of entrepreneurs have just looked at regulation sort of as this weird bump on the road, something to just get past. Today, it's something that we think about as a competitive advantage or at least edge. And it's something we know that we need to navigate with the most delicacy and focus. So specifically for the US, I think it's actually not as cumbersome as you might think compared to Europe. I think one of the things we've decided from a European perspective out of Brussels is that we're going to try to be a thought leader on especially AI, but also health AI and critical AI uh, legislation. So navigating this is a very different beast, even in certain parts of Europe, but it's a very, very different beast across the world. And it's a really encompassing thing to sort of navigate as a start. And by being a thought leader in Brussels, does that mean you're lobbying EU to try to enact or try to you know, support them in future legislation? Oh, so I, I don't think we as a coordinator, as a company, are a folk leader, although I'd love to be. But I think the European Union try to be that folk leader and try to work fast on legislation compared to US and, and other parts. We have lobbied quite a bit. We've been lucky to be invited to be a part of Digital Europe, where we've been a part of coming up with suggestions for legislation. And we've been a part of the dialogue trying to help frame some perspectives for growth startups. We've been doing that in Scandinavia and here in Denmark as well. And I guess that's sort of a weird part of being at the edge of important technologies that you sort of have a societal responsibility to get involved. And could you just give us an idea of the growth that you're seeing today? And our audience loves hearing metrics. So any metrics that you can share would be especially exciting, but we'd just love to understand what the growth looks like today and what the adoption looks like today. Yeah. So um, as I said, we started in 16. We took three or four years building. We did a full out, rolled out clinical trial. For those of you who know what that is, knows that was really cumbersome. Went to market during COVID. We did 800K our first year AR. And from then we've been growing several hundred percent per year. Last year we grew 300%. This year we're doing, hoping to grow still more than 200%. And the challenge for us is we're obviously dealing with, in our case, we sell to entire governments. We're lucky to cover for one all of Sweden's medical emergency hotlines, massive responsibility. We're really proud of. We have other European countries we were soon announcing also in Southeast Asia. So we work with these very big uh, governments, but we also work with 
quite small agencies and and payer providers. So we have a quite big spanning customer base. They buy on a subscription. So if you want Cordy, you add Cordy like you pay a, an employee. You pay us per consultation we join. And you pay us the more, the more you want us to do in that consultation. So you can go all the way from like simple decision support kind of features, not clinical decision support, but, but infrastructural or workflow decision support. And all the way to more and more automated engagements with, uh, let's say, uh, members of your your insurance company. So it spans from that part. They pay us on a subscription. They pay per consultation. It's usually multi-year deals. They take quite a long time to manifest. So we can spend six, eight, nine months building a relationship, signing a deal. And rolling out a government deal in uh, Europe can take up to a year into end. So some of our deals are quite long. Some of our deals take 90 days to roll out. And that's sort of part of the complexity we work in. And what do you attribute to your success and, you know, achieving that type of growth? Because just, you know, from my outsider view, it seems like this is a very crowded market on TechCrunch over the years. I've seen startups that perhaps have a different solution, but they're trying to articulate the problem that they want to solve in perhaps a similar way. So what have you done to be so successful and, and how do you really rise above the noise and capture the attention and earn the trust of these health systems and governments? I think, first of all, we haven't done all of that yet, but we're getting there and we're we're diligently working on it. I think that's the really, really boring answer for all of you out there. Back to my, my Churchill reference is that maybe there's fantastic overnight success building uh, Roblox ad platforms. But in our line of work, if you really want to have a deep impact on these patient providers, payer providers, then it just takes a ton of time. And trust is something you build over that time. So I think we're going to see a lot of fantastic Gen AI in healthcare. But I think getting it into healthcare past regulatory bodies and all that jazz will take what a lot of uh, young entrepreneurs will feel like very old world kind of moves that are there not to slow you down, but to prove you're worth it. And I think that's still a part of the institution of trust that's really important and takes us a ton of time. And why maybe from the outside, Cordy seems like it's growing really fast. To us, obviously, it's just a grind, getting there, proving it every day, being something to our customers. And it sounds really boring, but every one of you out there building knows just how important that last email is, that last webinar, that last training session, that last upgrade. And that's the small wins we try to stack every day. And I think to answer the second part of your question, how we differentiate, I think two things is really important for what we try to do, especially as we believe a lot of classic natural language processing features will commoditize. And we've believed that for years. It's really great to get administrative optimization, but I don't think that the best payer providers in the world will just want to cut off 5 7% of some kind of cost base if they cannot know for certain that it leads to better or at par quality of care. Because that's ultimately the promise that brand makes is that they're delivering quality of care in some capacity. So there is no trade-off, but the majority of tools out there today has at least a little bit of either direct or indirect trade-offs. Yeah, you can automate your let's say, ICD coding, but you don't know how, what kind of impact that will have on the, the clinicians, and the clinicians have no impact on this automation. And I think that's our differentiator. We're maybe not the mom-and-pop shop kind of AI company. We're more like you are a sophisticated payer provider. You have ideas of what good looks like, and you want not just to automate or cut cost, but you also want to do it while improving care. And that is a dictonomy for most providers. So you come to Cordy, you buy a provider, peer, government, organization-wide system that actually lets you do something you couldn't do before, which is actually get both. Mm, fascinating. And when it comes to Cordy's market category, 
what is that market category? Is it clinical documentation? Is it patient consultations? Like, what is that category? And is there an established term there? Or is it a term that you're really trying to pioneer, advocate for, and, and get the market to adopt? Something we're discussing a lot this part as we're building out our first marketing team as we speak. We think right now we're just in AI and healthcare. And that's sort of an umbrella category for all of us right now who's challenging that the technology stack is defined. So we will replace the, the payer provider's call recorder. We'll replace their call analytics. We'll replace some of their clinical documentation. We'll replace some of their decision support with non-decision support stuff. And that means we're meshing together a lot of very archaic, classic vendor spaces into a new space. And I think that's more a symptom of the, the tech stack is changing. It's changing really, really fast. Fascinating. And last couple of questions here, since I know we're up on time. And I, I have a feeling I know how you're going to answer this, but I'll ask it anyways. What excites you most about the work you get to do every day? Oh, it's the world stories from, from users. We had a fantastic case in, in mid-America because we got involved. We were we having a customer where our deployment wasn't going great. And we got involved to figure out what was wrong. We got them there. And when they started using the product, we're lucky that our customers, it's not like they just get to migrate to a faster database. They get to migrate to a faster system where they also have clinical impact. So when they tell their story about why it made sense to join us, they can always tell the story about how a patient got impacted. And that just rocks my world every time I hear it. That's so awesome. I love that. And I can see how that drives you. Last question here. Let's zoom out three to five years from today. Tell me about that high-level vision that you're working towards. I think Cordy or a company like Cordy will be able to build a massive company augmenting patient consultations and engagements. Our goal is covering a billion patients. And that's obviously maybe going to take us more than three years. But the goal is if we can cover that many patients with augmentation, we're going to not only be able to build fantastic machine learning that's able to automate with more and more. That means deflate the cost of care, make sure bias is less and less apparent, make sure everybody has access. But it's also going to allow us to build a company that we think can be quite pivotal and important and hard to compete with. So ultimately, that's what we uh, we count our beans on. It's the amount of patients we get to cover for and how many times we help them during a year. And that's the goal. The more the merrier, the more spectrums, the more kind of parts of healthcare we can help in from mental health to emergencies, uh, we get more excited. Amazing. I love it. Andreas, we are up on time, so we're going to have to wrap. Before we do, if people want to follow along with your journey as you continue to build here, where should they go? Go find us on LinkedIn or Twitter. We're called uh, Corti, C-O-R-T-I dot A-I. We're there. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. Uh, website is Corti dot A-I as well. Always hiring. Please reach out if you have questions. Uh, love to help. Awesome. Andreas, thank you so much for taking the time to share your journey talk about everything that you're building and, and really expand on that vision. This is super exciting. You're a really mission-driven entrepreneur, which I always find to be the most fun type of entrepreneurs to chat about. And I really learned a lot from our conversation and really enjoyed it. So thanks for taking the time and wish you the best of luck in executing on this vision. Thank you so much, Brett. You too. All right, keep in touch. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode.